Well, welcome to another afternoon of Sonship uh, Ministry Sunday service. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John 5. I'm continuing in the Gospel of John. I'm having a grand time in that Gospel. I'm learning a lot myself, and I'm enjoying preaching through it. I mean, it'll probably take me for the rest of my life since I only preach once a month, but um, that's okay, right? We're up to the fifth chapter of John. And one of the things as I was thinking about this particular text is one of the grandest and most beautiful things about Christianity is Christians get to share the gospel. No matter where we are, there are people who need Christ. If we're home, if we're at work, if we're in Italy as Brian and Terry are, if we're in the supermarket, if we're in the park, Wherever there is opportunity, we can share the gospel. And that's every place. That's something that should be on every single Christian's heart, is to share the gospel. However, one of the problems in American Christianity is we tend to exclude the helpless, the suffering, the beggars, the homeless, the widows, the orphans, and etc., we avoid face-to-face -face contact with suffering. In our text today, we see this is the complete opposite of the attitude of Jesus Christ. He had the complete opposite attitude. He goes right to the helpless. We go to the rich, the famous, the people who smell nice, the people who look good. Jesus went right to the helpless. He chose the unattractive, he chose the underdog, the one who, who no one cared about. And in our evangelism, we need to include the helpless. Now I want to make this clear about our text today in John 5. We'll be looking at John 5 verses 1 through 16. Jesus reaching out. And healing a helpless man is not the main point of the passage. We need to understand the passage in its broader context, which is the immediate surrounding. Okay, So in other words, what you have to look at in, in this particular text is John 5, verses 1 through 47. We have to look not only at the immediate context, but the book as a whole. In other words, we will really miss the point of John 5, 1 to 16, unless we read and understand John 5, verses 17 through 47, since that flows out of John 5, verses 1 through 16. And the two other things that play a role in correct understanding of this passage, that's why we always talk about context, whenever, not just for the preacher, but for the one who's studying the Bible, context is important, the two other things is that is this is the third of seven miracles or signs recorded by John. John recorded his gospel and wrote his gospel around seven miracles or seven signs. And each sign, each one of them, was not for the purpose of, oh Jesus, how wonderful you are, but Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And the, per and the second thing is the purpose of the whole book. John had a purpose. If you read John chapter 20, verse 31, he tells you his purpose of the whole reason why he wrote the Gospel of John. 
He wrote it that the reader will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, the reader will have life in His name. That's why he wrote John. And whenever you're reading that book, you've got to keep that in mind. So, saying that, let me briefly explain the main point of this passage. Because Jesus healed an invalid and told him to carry his bed on the Sabbath, that's key, this sparked two things. Opposition from the religious leaders. And because of this opposition, it led to Jesus to use strong words about his divine authority and his equality with God the Father. Now we're not going to be looking at that tonight, but the next two times I preach, we will develop that a little more. So, but it all flows out of what we're going to learn tonight. And all of this arises out of the incident of the healing on the Sabbath. So I believe the point John is driving home is Jesus does the work the Father does because He is as the Father is God. See, and I'll go a little ahead of myself, He got opposition for healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus could do whatever He wants because He is Lord of the Sabbath. And this shows us as you read through verses 1-47 to that the eternal life is not by keeping the Sabbath... Because that's what the Jews were talking about there. You know, you, you're healing on the Sabbath. You know, and they got really angry at him. But it's not keeping the Sabbath or the rules and regulations. But eternal life comes by repentance and trust in the Son of God. Now, once again, I will develop this more the next two times I preach. But today I'm just going to expound on verses 1 through 16 and give the application of it. I'm almost going to do like a, a topical, even though it's not topical, it's expositional, but it's almost going to be like a topical uh, uh, study on, on the application of that particular text. And it might be helpful if you jot down certain points so the next time I preach you will know exactly where we are in John 5. By the way, uh, it's okay to take notes. I mark up my Bible. If you person with an iPad, you could mark up your iPad, whatever you want to do. But it's important to take notes. We've kind of lost that, that art of taking notes when, when someone is preaching. You can't remember everything. I'm, in, I'm a Christian now, 35 years, and I still take notes. When, even when Brian's preaching, I'll jot down certain things. Okay, that, mm, yeah. You know, this way, I remember certain points that I need to remember. So what we're going to look at today is this. Evangelism includes reaching out to the helpless. For why? Because they need salvation like anybody else. We, and the three things, the three points I'm going to drive home today is we need to go to the helpless. We need to go to them. We need to show the helpless we can, number two. And number three is caring for the helpless may mean we will be criticized and persecuted. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He went to the helpless, he cared for the helpless, and was persecuted for caring for the helpless. Now in John's Gospel, once again, he records seven signs. We looked at two already. Remember the changing of water into wine? And the healing of the royal official, the last time I spoke. This is the third sign which we will look at tonight, the healing of an invalid. Um, and... And these signs, once again, or miracles, were for the purpose of proving that Jesus is the Christ. Even though Jesus did many more signs, he only records seven. Let's look at, at 
20, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 31. This is the purpose of the gospel again. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, these are the seven signs, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's another sign by Jesus to point people to himself. Start with verses 1 to 3. John 5 verse one to, verses 1 to 3. After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. He goes after this, after this. What does after this mean? Well, it's the events that took place when Jesus ministered in Galilee, including the healing of the official, the official son, if you read the, uh, the chapter before. So, what happened was, Jesus departed Galilee and goes up to Jerusalem for a feast. What feast? We're not sure. The Bible doesn't say. Sometimes the Bible tells you what feast it was, but we're not sure of what feast this was. John records six of the feast. And I believe he does this for the purpose of showing his readers that Jesus is the replacement or fulfillment of the feasts. The symbols in the feast all point to Christ. So John is very heavy, not only on signs, but also feasts. And when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, there's a pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades or, or porches. And this kept the lame and, the, and, and the, the paralyzed out of the elements. It kept them... It's sheltered. Now, if you have an ESV or any modern version, you'll notice that verses, the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 is omitted. If you have an ESV Bible, look at it right now. You'll see it goes from, from verse 3, it skips verse 4, and it goes right to verse 5. Or if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version or a New American Standard Bible, you'll have both 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. Let's read verses 3 and 4, because it's not in the ESV, which is the Bible we use here. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 in the New King James Version. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now the reason for omitting this is nearly all scholars, almost every one of them agree, part of verse 3, the list, part of verse 3, and all of verse 3, all of, I should say all of verse 4, is what they call a gloss. In other words, it was a textual note. It wasn't part of the original. The one copying the scripture would add textual notes to explain this. In this case, it was the popular explanation for the stirring of the water. So, in other words, the copyist would, would, would put a little commentary note, as you have in your modern uh, study Bibles, a little commentary note. And sometimes they would make the mistake, and this is what you need to hear, they would make the mistake of adding it to the text itself. And that's how the new... That's how the King James and the New King James, that's why they have it. And th this seems to have happened here. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts that they have 
do not have part of verse 3 and all of 4. And also the Latin Vulgate omits this. And to add to the doubtfulness of these verses, they are not the typical language of John the Apostle. So when the scholars look at this, they say, well, this really probably was not part of the original text. And matter of fact, even in the ESV, what they do is, they'll put a little number after three, and, and then a little footnote saying, giving you um, verses four, part of three and verse four. So the scholars believe this was not in the original. So what was the particular, or oh, the popular explanation for the stirring of the water that, that found its way into the text? And Dr. John Davis says this, There appears to have been a superstition about the pool connected with the movement in the waters, which likely caused by the intermittent inflow of water from underground feeder streams. In other words, when, these, when this inflow of water stirred the pools, the people thought it was an angel stirring the water. And it was more than likely a superstition. Anyway, Jesus arrives at this pool called Bethesda, where the blind, lame, and paralyzed lay. And these were helpless people. I mean, these were helpless, helpless people. You can't even compare them to the paralyzed and the blind today, because the, the paralyzed and the blind today, even though they're helpless, there's great modern medicine to help these people. These were helpless people. I mean, just... just and this superstition, they would think that the angel was going to stir the water and they were going to get in and somehow be healed. Verse 5, let's go to verse 5, says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to be in a condition like that. And the first point, Jesus goes to him. Out of the multitudes of sick, Jesus goes only to him. Why did Jesus only go to him? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But this should remind us of the great mystery of God's redemption and election. And in verses 6 and 7 we see, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. When the word is stirred up, and, I, and while I am going, another steps down before me. So we see Jesus in his omniscience, meaning that he's all-knowing, knew he was in that condition for a long time. Nobody had to tell Jesus he was in that condition for a long time. Jesus is the all-knowing, omniscient God. He knew it. And he says to the man, do you want to be healed? Now, when we read this, we might think of Jesus, why would you ask him, do you want to be healed? I mean, he's... Paralyzed. He's in that condition. Of course he wants to be healed. Why do you think he was sitting by the pool? We have a tendency to think that. He obviously, the, the man obviously believed in the healing powers of the pool, even though it was superstitious. That's why he was there. And Jesus knew this, so why he asked the question? And we've we got to know that Jesus never, ever did anything. Just without a reason, without a purpose. He always did something, or always asked a question, because there's a purpose, there's a reason. The second point is because Jesus cared. His question served several purposes. He wanted the man's full attention. He focused on the man's needs. 
He offered him healing. He showed him the depth of his love and his concern, his compassion. But also he wanted the man to know another thing. By getting healed, this would now change his lifestyle. No more depending on people. You're now going to have to work and get provision for yourself. That man was used to getting begging and getting money and, and, and needs, whatever he needed, things are going to change. And the man's response was not very encouraging. He was still believing in the superstitious powers of the water. In other words, the man was faithless. Here, the son of the living God comes over to him, go over to him and says, do you want to be healed? And he starts talking about the water again. So the man had no faith. And here is an example of someone who had no faith in the Son of God, and yet the Son of God still healed him. And it goes to show you, God does what He wants, when He wants, to who He wants. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. Three authoritative imperatives, imperatives are commands. Get up, take your bed, and walk. Just as the second person of the triune God had spoke, and the world was created, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus creates a new body. Verse 9, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. One thing I'd like to interject, when healing took place in the Bible times, there was no doubt. When Jesus healed, there was no doubt. The blind would immediately see. The deaf would immediately hear. The dumb would, would immediately talk. The dead were raised to life. Invalids, paralytics would walk. And parts of their body that were not able to do these functions anymore would. All this happened immediately. And today we see a lot of that on TV not happening like that. And I say that as a warning, because a lot of these guys are shysters, a lot of these preachers are shysters. They get up and, 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 these, and they take advantage of these people. And you, they'll, they'll say, they'll, say, they'll call up somebody uh, with a back problem. Well, everybody and their mother has a back problem. And people get up and they, they pray for him, and the man's still walking like this. Oh, oh, do you feel better? Do you feel better? Oh, I feel a little better. When Jesus healed, he healed. There was no doubt. There was no uh, hazy uh, reason. The, the, you, you knew that the person was healed. And I'm not saying that genuine healings don't take place today. That's what I'm not saying. I'm just saying you've got to be careful. Anybody who says they have a healing ministry, first of all, in the Bible, nobody had exclusively a healing ministry. Not one person. There was no such thing as a healing ministry. Paul the Apostle healed, but that wasn't his ministry. His ministry was preaching the gospel. So we've got to be careful. Anyway, Jesus, out of his great mercy and compassion, heals this poor invalid. And then came the trouble. The second half of verse 9 says, Now that day was the Sabbath. John inserts this seemingly incidental note that this healing was on the Sabbath, which in reality was a, was a real big deal. If you knew the Jews at, in those days, it was a big deal. 
Why such a big deal? Why did John insert this? Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, because Jesus commanded the man to carry his bed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was very, very, very sacred to the Jewish leaders. And in their historical interpretation of the law, called the Mishnah, they actually list 39 specific types of work that were illegal on the Sabbath. And the very last one, the 39th one, the 39th rule was, you cannot carry something from one place to another. But this was not scripture. This was their interpretation of scripture. And this led to a negative reaction from the Jews. Listen to the conversation between the heel man and, and the Jews, starting at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So, instead of rejoicing in God's power, in God's mercy, in God's compassion, of this healing of this poor man, instead of doing that, what do they say? Oh, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Doesn't that sound very religious? How wicked the human heart is. That they could look at a man healed, somebody who had been in a condition for 38 years, and say, oh, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. They missed the whole point of the Sabbath. And they missed the whole point of who Christ is. Let's read another incident of the Sabbath breaking rules. What Jesus said about that. Mark 2. 23 to 28. <clears throat> One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is the creator of the Sabbath. And so He is God. It says in Colossians 1.17, it says, All things were created through Him and for Him. And on that fact, He could reject the Jews' regulations concerning the Sabbath and restore the true intent that it would be a blessing and not a hardship. You see, they made it a hardship. God intended it to be a blessing, not a burden. Religion has not changed in 2,000 years, has not changed. Religious people still will honor a Sunday or a holy day while gossiping about someone on the way out of church. Or maybe even during the church service. Religion has not changed. Religion can never change the heart of a man. Only Christ can. Amen. But the healed man's response wasn't so wonderful either. 
when we studied Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman, we saw that when Jesus revealed himself to her, she ran back to the town and told everyone that she met the Messiah. She couldn't wait to bear witness to the greatness of Jesus. But this man who was healed, when the Pharisees pressured him for carrying his bed, said, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, hey listen, it wasn't my idea. The man who healed me told me to do it. Remember in the garden, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree, they were told not to eat it. And when God confronted Adam, what did he say? The woman you gave me, she gave it to me, and I ate. And we read the story of Jesus healing a man who was blind from birth in John 9. Now he had a totally different reaction. When the Jews pressed him about who healed him, he didn't hesitate to say, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. All I know is this, because they were pressuring him, give glory to God. He, this man is a sinner. He, he healed you on the Sabbath. He's not allowed to do that, I'm paraphrasing. And he said, but if this man wasn't from God, the, the blind man that was healed said, if he wasn't from God, um, he, he could not do anything. And he said this to them, all I know is, is this, I once was blind, but now I see. So both the invalid and the blind man were pressed by the Jews to identify Jesus. And neither one could at that, at that moment. But one gave glory to God. When Jesus met the blind man, he healed. He said to him, do you believe the Son of God? In the Son of God. He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Not so this invalid man. He went back to the Jews and kind of threw Jesus under the bus. Listen to verse 14 and 15. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And what did the man do? He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. 38 years of sickness and now healed by the Son of God and he walked away and he shows his loyalty to the Jews instead of Christ. This reminds me of the story when, the, when Jesus healed the ten lepers and only one came back to worship Christ. See, healing doesn't necessarily bring people to Christ. Yeah, I used to think that, you know, I, let's, let's pray for someone and if they heal, they'll come to faith in Christ. See, many stories in the Bible... God did many miraculous things, many healings, and people never seem to have come to faith in Christ. Now we don't know if this invalid ever came to Christ or not. The Bible is silent on that. But judging from these verses, he didn't have such a great response. Nonetheless, Jesus gave the invalid who he, who he healed a wonderful piece of advice. This is part of the Gospel. He said, see you all well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, let me say this, and you need to hear this. We should never conclude, never, ever, ever conclude that, that sickness is always the result of sin. Don't ever come to that conclusion. Nor the opposite. Nor should we conclude that sin is never the result of sickness. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Without spending time on this, sin could be the result of sickness as it appears in this case. It seems that Jesus' warning to stop sinning so nothing worse may happen to you was the result of some personal sin in his life. Dr. John MacArthur says, if the man persisted in unrepentant sin, Jesus warned, he would suffer a fate infinitely worse than 38 years 
of debilitating disease, namely eternal punishment in hell. So maybe that's what Christ meant when he said something worse may happen to you. Maybe not a worse sickness, but if you don't stop sinning, repentance, that's a good place to start. And don't put your faith in Christ, you'll suffer the consequences of eternal hell. Now, there is no indication, once again, he heeded Jesus' warning because he went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. So we don't know where this man was out. Maybe he did come to faith in Christ after Christ was crucified. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. We could only assume. And then verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now this is pivotal in this text. Um, and this is the third point where Jesus is persecuted. Now Jesus not only did these things on the Sabbath, he didn't only heal on the Sabbath, but he did something else. He provoked someone else to break the Sabbath law. He said, pick up your bed and walk. Remember, in the Mishnah, the 39th law was, you're not allowed to carry anything from one place to another. So he not only told the man, and he, or I should say healed the man on the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath law in their mind anyway, but he also made others to do so. And this led to a great hostility from the Jewish leaders and eventually his crucifixion. In other words, by doing this miracle, because he loved the helpless, he sealed his death warrant. It sent him to the cross. And we see from this point on, as you read chapters 5 through 12, you see the great opposition from the Jews at this point on. And what we're going to see is Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and his strongest statements about divine authority the next time I speak. And that's where really the text ends for our message tonight. But where does it leave you and me? Does Jesus call us as Christians to do the same? Well, it doesn't mean we're going to go around healing people. Jesus practically wiped out disease in, in, in Israel the time he walked the earth. We're not going to do that. We're not going to necessarily heal people, but what he wants us to do is to go to the helpless. Jesus went to the pool called Bethesda. He went where they were. We need to go where the helpless are. Don't wait for the helpless to come to you. Go to them. No matter how unattractive they are. Listen, it's human nature to stay away from human suffering. It's human nature to stay away from the unattractive. Nobody wants to go to a person that smells funny, that looks funny. We don't want to do that. This man Jesus went to could not have been attractive at all. He was in the midst of a crowd of broken humanity. He must have smelled beyond what you and I could imagine. He was crippled. He couldn't get to a bathroom. He was just laying there in his own mess. And not only him, but all the others around him. So when Jesus went to him, you need to get this picture in your mind. When Jesus went to him, the odor and the scene must have been horrific, to say the least. This didn't deter Jesus. 
he went right to them, or that, to that particular man. He wasn't afraid to face suffering. Jesus said in John 5, 17, the second half of 17 and 19, He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I, said to, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus did what the Father did on the Sabbath. He wanted to alleviate suffering. He faced human suffering. He gave, he healed, he gave eternal life. The Sabbath, re, the Sabbath restriction on working didn't apply to God. It applied to them, but it didn't apply to God. Religious restrictions do not apply to God. Neither does religious restrictions apply to you and me as believers in Christ. You and I to need to face human suffering no matter how unattractive it is. The second thing is we need to show the helpless we care. How do we show them we care? How? We build relationships with, relationships with them. Jesus did. How did He do it? Well, He started by engaging in a conversation. Do you want to be healed? We start by engaging in conversation. I love John, Dr. John Davis who preaches here, our mentor. We, we go out with him occasionally. And I love when we're in a restaurant and a waiter will come over and, he, and he, he always looks at the waiter and he says, where are you from? He engages in a conversation. And the guy will say, oh, Albania. And he says, oh, I've been to Albania. And he starts his conversation. You know, it's really not hard to start a com conversation. Just get into other people's worlds and we have to come out of our own world Meet, if possible, needs they have. Jesus met his, that particular person's need. He healed them. We have to, if possible, meet their needs. How? Maybe buy them food. Another story by John Davis. <clears throat> when he moved to Philadelphia, he'd be sitting on his porch, and a homeless person would pass, and he'd, he'd call the homeless person over, the homeless person, he'd engage in conversation with him, he'd go in his house, the guy was hungry, he'd get him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, give it to him, engage in a conversation, give him the gospel. We can pray for them, we can buy them food, and, and we, we need to use discretion, we can give them money. You build relationships, and you give them, sometimes you see the genuine need, and you give them money, as much as you can give. The third thing is, we give them the gospel. Jesus gave him good advice. Sin no more. He started with repentance. That's where the gospel really starts. You can't go to Christ unless you repent. Repentance starts your way to Christ. Turning away from sin and turning to the cross. And then point them to Christ. Of course, situations vary in how we preach the gospel. And the same gospel message, of course, but sometimes it's a little different situation. Sometimes... A person is so broken over his sin, you don't give him the Ten Commandments, you give him the love of God. Sometimes a person is so self-righteous, you give him the Ten Commandments and show them how self-righteous they are not. And the third thing is, caring for the helpless may mean we will be criticized. I shouldn't put, I shouldn't say may, may. I should, it should be we more than likely will be criticized. Jesus was. Again in verse 16, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
Who was he persecuted by? The religious people. The one who conformed outwardly to the law of God, but inwardly they were dead. They were sinful as any other sinner. They were murderers just like a murderer on the outside. They were liars. They were adulterers. Even though they didn't do the physical act, they were adulterers on the heart. But yet they looked good outwardly. You see, Jesus violated their tradition. That got them angry. Are you willing to be criticized and persecuted for bringing the gospel to the helpless and meeting their needs? Are you willing to do that? Let me say this, and I say this lovingly, but cautiously and as a warning. If you're not, you might need to evaluate your Christianity. We need to go to the helpless. We need to care for the helpless. We need to be willing to be persecuted for the helpless. Go to the helpless, wherever they are. No matter how unattractive they are. Show the helpless you care. Build relationships with them. Engage in conversation. Meet needs if possible. Give them the gospel. And third, be willing to be persecuted for going to them and sharing the gospel. Meeting their needs. Let's pray. And Father, we who are Christians today were those helpless people. And you came to us in our great time of need.